fandom? Well, I'm glad you asked. Fandom is your obsession with TV, movies, comics, and books. Fandom is debating whether or not Goku or Superman would win in a fight. Clearly, it's Batman. Fandom is about liking things. Join us weekly on Fandom as we talk about all of that and more. Subscribe at fandompodcast.com. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a... Well, the owner of a comic book store. Trust me, true believer. Well, Jagger and me, we had a running contest to see who had the most comic books in the world. Whatever, my skate was, um, comic books. Net profit to me, negative $59. I love the comics because of the brightness displayed by the fellows who drew them. They remained with me always, and when comic books first came into being, it drew me to them. Tales from the Comic Shop. Hey, and welcome to Tales from Your Comic Shop. I'm your host, Joe, and today I'm joined by Eddie D'Angelini and Roger Prouse. How are you doing, gentlemen? Doing good. This is Eddie, well, co-owner of Heidi Hill Comics and the creator of the Collector's Comic Strip. And I'm uh, Roger Prouse. I co-own the Nerd Store in West Valley, Utah, and I also co-run the Wasatch Comic Con. All right. So uh, how was your guys' week so far? Wonderful. <laughs> well, Roger, I guess the big news in uh, comic shops is that uh, they're doing free comic book summer. Yeah, which is a thing. Which is a thing. Apparently. So what does so, that mean, guys? Yeah. What is free comic book summer? So from what I understand, apparently the idea is we're going to get a very limited amount of issues that we're going to be giving away for each week. So if you want all of the free comic book day books, unlike normal where you could go in, you know, get, you know, whatever your shop limits you to, maybe hit another shop, do it all in one day to get what you're after. Um, you're going to have to come back in your shop multiple times over multiple weeks over the course of the whole summer in order to get those books. So I think that's the that's the concept they're running with unless I have misunderstood it. Which sounds like a great idea, but for some of us in a state where um, people are very weary of going out during the middle of the pandemic, I don't see it really helping much, unfortunately. I'm in a state where people don't seem to care, and honestly, I don't see it helping much either. I mean, first off, the reason people went to free comic book day and the reason they showed up was only partially ever about the comic books. I mean, if, let's be honest, most of your customers, if they said, hey, these are the comic books I want on free comic book day, you'd throw them in their hold. They could pick them up later. You know, they weren't going in for free comic book day for the books. They were going in for the event and for the um, the fun and all those kind of things, and this does nothing to provide that. Um, for somebody to come in, you know, specifically if their only desire was um, to get the free comic book day books, not somebody who's already coming in, you know, they're not there to, they're not going to put, go out of the way just to get these couple of different issues that they're being provided. It's not worth the trip. And it brings nothing to the stores because the only people that are going to be picking up are the people that are already there. So you're going to be giving away product that as a reminder, free comic book day books do cost stores money and shipping expenses. And so we're going to be giving away these products that are not going to do anything in this scenario to generate extra sales. Yeah, agreed. Um, I mean, really, the whole free comic book day events that we would always do would just bring in a massive amount of people for that one day. And yeah, 
they all would come in and get their free comics, but they all came and would spend money on a bunch of stuff because it was basically a party atmosphere. And you're obviously running a sale at the same time, as opposed to just doing it, trickling it out over the summer for people who are there already, who are just coming to buy their pull books. Uh, I don't really see it making them want to buy more stuff. Yeah, I'm not, I don't, just, I don't yeah. see it either. I, it doesn't seem viable to me. Um, and frankly, most of the shop owners I've talked to pretty much have all kind of laughed at it and said, okay, well, I'm cutting my orders to next to nothing on most of this stuff then because it just doesn't seem to have any return. And a lot of them are just not participating at all. It seems to me like, you know, free comic book day is a great event. And it's a great idea. And I know it's very iconic, but it seems like a lot of people just couldn't admit maybe it needed a year off and this was the best they could come up with. And they felt like they had to do something to, to make it work. And I think we just needed to come to a, you know, understanding that maybe it just needed a year off. Yeah. There's no harm in that. Um, but I guess maybe it just raises the question of, well, we printed all these books. What are we going to do with them now? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's what most of it comes down to. And frankly, they're not going to move most of them anyways. I think that's just going to be kind of a loss because I don't think the shops are going to be signing up to take on anywhere near. I mean, I don't know what your bill normally is. I think our bill just in free comic book day books is four or $5,000 we spend just on those books. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously like the larger titles, you know, I'm ordering like, you know, several hundred of each yeah. of them. Yeah. And I just did a FOC today that included some of the first few that are going to be coming um, that we haven't gotten already. Cause I did get, I think two or three titles already and I just cut them way down. And some of them are just like, down to zero because I'm thinking, why do I need them at this point? Yeah. yeah. Same. So yeah, perhaps maybe just the best thing would have been to just take a year off. The other big news this week was um, some accusations of uh, some improper behavior by Warren Ellis towards young women who are young creators trying to break into the industry. Um, There's really a whole episode's worth of material. We're not going to dive real deep into this this week. The pertinent information is the initial accusation was made by a, a creator named Katie West. I think it's important that the show and myself and Roger and Eddie, we all think it's important to say that we believe victims. We think it's important that we have to believe victims and especially when they're coming forward with accusations like this. I don't think that, I don't think that we have enough information on hand to really do justice to what's being said. But if you want the information, um, it's definitely out there. There's a lot of women who have come forward to talk about their experiences. I think it's very important that we listen to them and hear them out. My, and, yeah, my, my biggest goal would be to elevate some of the voices already discussing it really eloquently. And um, one I've pointed to and that I'd recommend people to, to look at is G Willow Wilson on Twitter um, wrote about not only the individuals involved, but kind of the entirety of the, um, the culture that allowed these types of things to happen for as long as they did. Um, so I'd really recommend for people to go uh, read her words and see what she has to say about it. Agreed. So yeah, don't listen to us, listen to the people who this happened to and really take what they're saying and internalize it. And uh, don't just, don't just play lip service to it or don't go after them. If you're a big Warren Ellis fan or whoever it, really take the time to listen to what these women are saying before responding. 
if you are a Warren Ellis fan and you love his work, this upsets you. I think that you need to make an effort to separate the work from the man so that you can continue to enjoy the work and hold up the person under the scrutiny that they deserve to be held under. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's several other um, examples where you've had to kind of learn to do that in entertainment in general. So uh, this will just add to that pile. It seems to be an ongoing thing, really. Uh, it makes me wonder if you are a creator high up in the comic industry, how hard is it to not be a jerk? Is it really that hard? All right. So we're going to move on to uh, the meat of this podcast, and we are going to be continuing our How to Collect series. This is the second episode in that series. Today, we're going to be talking about investors and speculators. Roger, why don't you tell us about the difference between investing and speculating? Yeah, I think there's there's two key, real key differences um, between those two uh, ideals. First off, I, the way I look at it, speculating is more about making immediate um, income. It's about buying a book today at $5 or $3 and turning around and selling it for 10 or 20 or, or more um, to put money back in your pocket to then do that again and over and over and over and so forth and so forth to grow those funds. Um, the idea of investing is to buy a book now, hold on to that book, enjoy that book, and then one day hopefully be able to sell that for, you know, hopefully significantly more than than what you've been able to, to sell, to purchase it for, or at the very least, be able to get your money back out of it after you've had the enjoyment from it. So it's a low risk um, area, you know, kind of like the difference between, um, you know, putting your money into a something like a CD or, um, you know, a, a, a stable account versus um, playing it into, um, you know, frequently changing stocks and things like that. I, I equate it to uh, um, mutual funds and possibly day trading. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. Um, the, speculating is generally going to come with more inherent risk than investment if done properly, um, but it also has more reward. The other big difference is um, speculating takes a heck of a lot more foot traffic. It takes it takes a lot more work and a lot more effort. Um, proper, I mean, to be good at a comic speculator and to be clear, most comic speculators are not good at being comic speculators. Most people that do this do not make money. Most of them lose money. Um, and, and some of them lose money in a pretty big way. But if you're a good one, it's, it's a full-time job between the research and the selling and the, the quantities and things that you have to do. Um, it's a significant undertaking. Yeah, it's definitely, it takes someone with, um, some real nerve and savvy, I think, to pull it off and be successful. There's more to it than just walking into your shop and asking the guy behind the counter, which one of these is going to be worth money in the next few months. Right. Or, or, or saying something trending on Twitter that's people are talking about and running in and demanding that the store sell you the one that, you know, all the copies they have on the shelf are getting yelling at them because they don't have any left on the shelf. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It takes time. Uh, you need to put in the time and you need to research what's coming out before it comes out and not, um, like you said, get it on Twitter, Twitter when it's trending, because at that point it's too late. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the, the comic speculators that I know that have done well with it, and again, that's a, that's a short list. Um, they, they develop specific skills um, uh, and, and they, kind of network in a totally different way. Um, 
uh, as far as investment goes, your your primary networking for for a comic investor is is really going to be finding older books. You know, we do a lot more investing in what we call blue chip books, um, which are your big major key issue first appearances, gold, silver age, some bronze. Um, looking for those types of books, investing in those, and holding those. And so you're networking with stores, dealers. Um, find some people you trust. Find some people you know. Um, some people you can trust to help you with grading and some people that you know that if you, if you purchase from are, are giving you an honest, fair deal um, and really kind of put your money with them. It's the bottom of the end, uh, appeal of it is that it's a lower work and, and, and a little bit less time and you can do that that way. Yeah. In that case with investing, you have the luxury of finding another dealer, shop owner, um, basically someone like me or someone like Roger who can curate uh, those fines for you and help you out with the grading and give you an idea of what it is that you should be paying for it and how long you should hold on to it, how many years you should hold on to it if your plan is to resell it for more than what you paid. So really someone like Roger or myself, we are your allies um, in that point of view for that side of it. But for speculating, yeah, I, I, there's not a lot of allies out there because everyone is like very cutthroat and very competitive. Yeah. So I think let's talk on, um, on the investment side of things first. This is something I know all three of us do personally to a certain extent. Um, and, and so let's, let's talk about some tips and some ideas on kind of what people can do to be good at investing and why you might want to consider comic book investing over other forms of, of, you know, classic investment. Well, I would say the first two things that you really should do is um, learn what a key issue is and what key issues are hot and for what reason. Um, Are they hot for the long term? Are they hot for short term? And uh, the other point that I would um, definitely stress is learn how to grade. Uh, You don't need to be a professional CGC grader to, um, to learn the basics. Learn what a book in 4.0 VG is supposed to look like. Uh, learn what a 8.0 VF book is supposed to look like so that when you are getting to the point where you're going to drop a few thousand dollars on a really nice book, uh, you want to make sure with your own eyes that that book really is the grade that it's being touted at and that you're paying a range that is very acceptable for that condition. And what yeah, kind and, of return you can expect for that book in that condition. And you can often, I mean, that's not to say that you shouldn't ever purchase pre-graded books either, but having, having the ability to see something and say, Hey, you know, I think that guy's selling that. I mean, how many times have you had this where you've gone to other dealers and said, I, that guy's selling that book as a BG. I think it's more of a fine. I think that he's low on the price on that. I mean, I've done that when I've traveled to comic cons, I bought from other dealers where I thought that they had something undergraded. Um, and most of the time I'm, I'm right. And most of the time I do well with that and, and I'm able to just buy it right from them and, and either hold it or flip it once it comes back from grading. So but most of the times, though, it's usually the other way around. I find <laughs> the dealer's yeah. got a VG book that he's saying is, you know, fine. Most or fine dealers. Plus. Yeah. 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 And you're looking at it going, man, they're asking that price for that book. When and that's another big see the defects. Yeah. And that's another big reason to educate yourself. There is actually a, an overstreet guide to grading. Um, if you are going to be a serious collector of any type of silver, gold or bronze age books and any sort of investment grade books, um, you really need to purchase and read that entire book. Um, yes. It's 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 an essential. 
Yeah, that book will tell you what defects can be allowed for each grade. Um, and you familiar familiarize yourself with what those defects are and what they look like. Therefore, when you're out in the wild and you are speculating on possibly buying a book uh, raw, uh, you can use that knowledge um, to make sure that the book you're getting is you know, correctly graded and correctly priced. Or even you can even use that knowledge to your benefit to possibly get the price down a bit. You also need to familiarize yourself with the grading companies because a lot of dealers take advantage of the fact that people don't know the different grading companies and will go with grading companies that are maybe not as reliable because they'll get higher graded books that they then sell. You know, I've seen dealers that especially the ones that do touring cons that'll try to sell PGX books for the same price as a CGC in that same grade. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, that's it, it's like paying the same amount for a geo that you would for a Cadillac. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. And it's just not a good call to make that purchase. So when I purchase PGX, I purchase PGX as though it's raw. I look at it, I grade it myself, and I don't purchase it as a graded price because I don't trust them at all. I had a 9.8 um, of, um, it was a Daredevil, it was a key issue. I think it was the first um, Typhoid oh, Mary that came in. Yeah. No, it's Typhoid Mary. And it was a 9.8, and the thing had an obvious like full corner bend in the, in the spine corner um, with, color, with color break. And the person that's selling to me said, Oh, it's a nine, eight. And I said, this, I, I hate to break it to you. This is not a nine, eight. Um, you know, the, you know, the, it just isn't. And so but he wasn't real so. happy about it. Yeah. He wasn't real happy about that. And I ended up explaining it to him. Um, and, and that, you know, it comes down to having a good dealer, you know, as many times I've seen people try to do these comic book investment on their own without a good dealer, they get ripped off a lot. When you first get started, they, they lose money. I had a guy that came in who bought a, first Punisher he managed to get for $80 and he was super thrilled that he got this first Punisher. It was a little rough, but I mean, the first Punisher for 80 bucks is insane. He brought it into us yeah. to show it off. And I had to inform him that it was the uh, reprint that they gave away at the, uh, at the viewing of the oh, movie. No. It's worth about, it was worth about $2 oh. in that grade. And uh, he was really unhappy about it. But this is, this, this happens when you don't know the little things to look for. I've had that same experience many times with star Wars number one, because the reprints are so subtle. Um, people buying books, thinking that they're getting a first print, um, and and buying reprints and finding out that they, you know, they got ripped off. So um, oh, I've even been taken you. in by that too. I mean, yeah. we could uh, we could do a whole show on that uh, number one, the reprints, the uh, the variants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially um, that thirty five center before you learn that trick. That's a great one. So while we're talking about grading companies, I think it's important to talk about. PGX and Halo are both notorious for missing restoration. And uh, another thing is they will miss, like I know this happened with PGX a number of times with the gold books and silver books, they have missed missing pages. So that's another big thing to be remember about when and purchasing any PGX or Halo book, you have to protect yourself because like I, I bought a Batman 58 from a guy I met on Facebook that's a PGX graded book and he wanted CGC value for it. And I just had to tell him there's no way because I don't know if their page is missing from this or if there's restoration on it. And I ended up paying him about a third of uh, CGC value for that PGX book. And that's about where I'm and, comfortable. And, and that's a fair value comparatively. I mean, it really is. It's not like you were ripping him off. No, no. I, I mean, if you wanted to go and send it to CGC and get it come, you know, and do all that and have it come back, then we could go back and renegotiate. But he has to do that. You, you can't just say, oh. And another big thing you'll hear people say is, oh, this is a 9.2. 
but it hasn't been pressed yet. With a press, it's a nine eight, and it's just like well, you don't know that. that. Yeah, that's <laughs> not how that. I mean, pressing pressing isn't magic, and um, you, you know you'll see that a lot more with books in the five to seven range. Guys will say, you know, seven CGC not never pressed. Well, first off, they don't know that it hasn't been pressed unless they've owned it the entire time since it came out, because you can't track pressing. So it's just it, there's a lot of little stuff like that you have to be very careful about. Like, don't buy a book for full price, expecting as an investment, expecting that you're going to press it and it's magically going to go up, you know, X amount of dollars. Sure. The oh. other thing that uh, I see a lot too is uh, someone trying to sell a book claiming that it, it's raw, but claiming that, oh, well, this would easily get a 9.4 or a 9.6 or 9.8, whatever. Especially when and, they claim 9.8. That just, yeah. Any, anybody who right. claims 9.8 but, on a raw book, I run away from. Run. Exactly. But, but the worst part of it is that they will then expect to uh, get paid for what a CGC 9.8 would yeah. sell for. Yeah. And, you know, when, if you're going to really you know, try to demand that price and then put your money where your mouth is, send it in, get the nine, eight, then sell it, but don't try to sell it raw at the same another price. Thing, yeah. Another thing that is just absolutely essential for an investor is learn your restoration because there's a huge difference between a C1 and a C3 and knowing what the difference is in between those, you know, it, it's, it's everything. I mean, for instance, example, I bought, a Batman 2, which I had on the show as my cool thing. And when I bought it, it's a purple label. It's a C1, though, and I know exactly what the restoration on it is. And I paid close to full value, full GPA for a purple, which is something I would rarely recommend doing. But I did it on this one because I know what the restoration is on this book. I know that the restoration can be safely removed and that it will regrade as a blue when I get around to doing that. So and be very but, careful also about trying to do things on your books that you think would be helpful that could end up turning into restoration. I mean, I think people don't realize the type of things that they could do that could give it a purple label and how much that could impact the, um, the uh, value on that book in a negative way. Absolutely. I, I would never recommend anyone do any sort of self restoration without any kind of expertise. Like no, 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 no. Yeah. Definitely so, don't do that. And, uh, you know, another thing, you need to know to watch out for trimming. Like, I saw a guy, he posted up an X-Men 1 that he paid full value for raw, and, you know, Iceman's entire hand was missing from the cover. And, like, I mean, it's very obvious to someone who's seen that book a thousand times, you know, a million times, but this guy was new in the business, new in the industry, and um, he got got, you know? And this is what we were what we were talking about to start with is and what Eddie was talking about is find an ally, find someone like like us that has been in here for a while and we know kind of what to look for and we can kind of I mean because if I sell you something if I sell you something like that first off it's gone through both me and Charles in my store um, and with that if if it manages to get to you where something like a trim or something has been missed first off both of us would have to miss it so the odds of that are really really low certainly much lower than buying on eBay or um, at a Comic Con um, and. Second off, if that happened and I, and I knew that I, you, I sold you that copy and you bring it back to me and said, hey, you forgot this, I'm going to take care of that every single time because that's on of me. Of course. Of course. Um, and, and having that ally is a really important thing um, if you want to do this in a way that's safe and really protects your investment instead of just dumps a whole bunch of money into a black hole that you don't get it back. 
Sure. Having uh, someone like myself or like Roger uh, kind of in your back pocket when you're going to pull the trigger on a big book like that is uh, beyond valuable. It's the same thing um, as if you're going to buy a car and you bring your mechanic with you to check it out. Yep. You know, that's a great, that's you, a great analogy. Have, yep. You want to have a pro there that's going to give you the ins and out of exactly what you're getting into. You wouldn't buy a home without hiring an inspector. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. I mean, and it's, and it's, I, and I know Eddie, I'm sure you probably do too, but I have customers who will buy things from somebody uh, uh, either online or like a, even a different shop and they'll come to me and ask my opinion for it and I'll give it to them. I mean, if they're regular customers of mine and they take care of us, I don't mind that they're not buying every book through me. I don't expect them to buy every book through me. Well, you know, course. I want them to have a good experience. So if they have a deal with a buddy or if they've, I mean, even if they've been lucky enough that they found somebody that they're working with, that's a neighbor or an uncle and they're trying to figure out, you know, how much to pay as a fair value, I'm going to go ahead and put my expertise out there for them. Um, you know, if, if, if they're, if they're a regular and they're somebody that we have a vested interest in taking care of. In general, CBCS sells for slight, like about 10%, 10 to 20% less than CGC in my experience. I, I sell if I get it. I personally don't sell PGX books in this very low end. I get anything I purchase reslabbed before I will sell it. Um, but I purchase PGX books at about a third what I would pay for a CGC book generally. Yeah, yeah. I don't really know anything about Halo. I know they're international. I've never bought I put, a Halo I put book. Them the, I put them the same as PGX. I just don't see them often enough for it to be a real thing. So purple labels are restored books, and restoration can be anything from color touch on a book. So that could be a professional adding or covering up a, a spine tick that color breaks to somebody coloring on it with a magic marker, um, tape on the inside or outside of a cover glue also, uh, can be restoration. Um, and then it can get super, it can go from that basic to super professional. You can have people who go in and they, um, add rice paper to fill in gaps in like a cover or um, they can do other stuff to shore up the uh, to shore up how um, the spot, the spine to make it like stronger. Um, and in, in the, in the eighties, if I recall, um, it, the, the restoration was actually considered pretty desirable and people would pay pretty good money to people that were good at it. You had people that would actually sometimes even like hand draw in individual areas of a missing cover and things and charge quite a premium <laughs> for it back then. Cause people really put a value on it. And, and the other thing, yeah, the other thing about restoration, I mean, the thing that's interesting about re- it's got a long history in the nineties, what came into vogue was trimming and trimming's the kind of restoration that can't be fixed. It's where a guy goes and he takes, well, hopefully he's doing it with paper cutter paper and cutter. not with scissors, but um, I've seen both. they go and they I trim the both. edges. <laughs> yeah. They trim the edges of the comic to make it look like there are less flaws so they can sell it for a higher nice value. Crisp, nice crisp corners. And some people are, I mean, sometimes it's a very minuscule amount that they, that they trim off. Um, absolutely but it, it, it could make a big difference in the value of the book oh any trimming at all it makes a huge difference and so basically though purple labels they have a rating and it's c1 to c5 i believe and uh c5 would be super restored so like there's reproductive covers yeah things like that and, and amateur stuff whereas c1 would be minimal restoration or very well done professional restoration 
the trick to evaluating the value of a purple label book is you want to use what the book would grade at at blue label. So like say you've got a C you've got a 7.0 purple and it's a C5 that's going to have extensive restoration probably done possibly done by an amateur. The best that like a 7.0 purple C5 is going to probably grade at blue is like a 2.0, 1.0, even possibly 0.5 in that range. You know, it could have a married cover. It could actually be an incomplete book. Yeah. So basically, whereas like with a C1 book with like minimal restoration that can even be removed by professionals, then that's going to grade closer. Like say you've got a 3.0, that's going to grade closer to 2.0, 2.5 blue. That's about where you want to be in your price range when you're paying for it on that ladder. So that's how. So effectively, effectively the restoration, whatever it does, you just don't pay for it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You okay. you want to be as close to what the book would. So that's another reason to, if you're going to be investing in purple label books, that's another reason to, uh, to learn your grading. And uh, one tip that helped me when I started off grading, I wanted to go back and add this was um, on anything like between six and nine, all you got to do is count the flaws and give them a value of 0.2, add those up and subtract them from 10. And it's not perfect, but it will get you a lot closer than trying to learn all the rules when you're first starting out, in my opinion. That's how I did it for a long, long time. Probably not a bad, probably not a bad rule of thumb as any. So, so a green label effectively is a, uh, most often is when you get a signature on a book that does not have a witness with the signature. Um, so green labels are typically there's some sort of defect on the book that doesn't typically necessarily impact the grade of the book. Um, sometimes manufacturing flaws and errors can be considered a green label, depending on the type of manufacturing error. Some of them are, are, are take a hit on a blue label. Um, green label does tend to sell for less than a blue label in the similar condition, but it kind of depends on what it is like an unverified signature. If it looks pretty legit it won't add much value to it on a green label, but it's generally not going to detract much from it. If at all, depending on the collector, although some people really hate just having a book of a different color and won't buy it for that reason. So the green label really depends on, on what it is in the collector. I think one of the things that's interesting about comics as a collectible is it's one of the few collectibles where imperfect books, as far as like manufacturing errors does not tend to generally add a lot of value. There's exceptions to that for sure. Certain, um, but most of the time, manufacturing errors make a minimal increase and sometimes even cause a decrease in value on books. And, it, and it's really depending on the collector. Some people collect for that and some people don't. So I got a green label once uh, from a book that I sent in. And the reason for it was uh, it says on the label itself, manufacture defect. And the defect was it was a double cover, but instead of a regular double cover, the second cover was the centerfold page. And it was just such a weird, unique thing that I ended up selling that book for way more than uh, I should have, way more than what a regular blue label would have been. Like I said, it depends on what it's from and it depends on the collector. You got to find someone who likes that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I have to find the right one. A lot of green labels are just they'll have like a clipped coupon or a Marvel value stamp will have been taken out of the book. And, and those will drop the value sometimes very considerably. Yes. So it's important I even to have read a few, the notes. Uh, 
I even have a few dual labels. So like the, let's talk about yellow labels and autographs. Um, the yellow label means a verified signature. And, and when we talk about these levels, we're specifically talking about CGC. They're different with other companies. Um, but we're focusing on CGC for the reasons of, you know, talking about people's investments. And I think we're all pretty much on the same board. The CGC is the best way to go if you're talking long-term investment. So the yellow label means that it's, when you got the autograph done, it was witnessed by a CGC representative um, and they verify the authenticity of the autograph. And they, you know, if you have some one of those types of things that would normally make a green label, they actually will give you like green, yellow combo labels or even purple, yellow combo labels if it's autographed on a um, restored book. So you can have multiple different types of labels as well. Just real briefly, we're going to touch on red label. I personally don't have any faith in handwriting analysis as a science. I think it's a pseudoscience at best. With, with, red, with red label, you're no longer talking about CGC. You're talking about CBCS. Yes, you are talking about it. They're, they're very prevalent and they're very popular. I would take every red label with a grain of salt. I have seen red label books where the autograph was definitely not accurate. I've seen also or actually an autograph from the person and i've seen red labels where there was a what was the spawn 199 thank you book is that the name of it that todd mcfarlane refuses to sign yeah it wasn't 199 but it was a spawn thank you book yes okay anyways it has a three it has an asm 300 homage cover it says thank you on it it was supposed to be for shop owners only and so because it's not supposed to be out in the resale market todd won't sign it there was a red label The guy opened up, cracked the slab, the red label, opened it up to see if it was actually autographed by Todd, because that would be crazy, uh, because he's never signed those. What they had approved as real was the the facsimile printed signature in his thank you letter to the shop to shop owners who have carried spawn. (laughs) Yep. And there was another instance. There was another instance where they had um, CGC red label that somebody had gotten and they'd actually gotten the autographs from Rob Liefeld as well as um, I believe Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane were the three that were targeted. Um, and they'd actually gotten their autographs on these books, but then they had taken and traced um, original art that was known from these creators. So these, they, they looked up sketches that other people had paid them for and gotten done and they trace that art onto those and so when they send it in that red label came back and verified the autograph and they sold that then as a verified art piece um which it was not um and so that's another you know kind of trick that that aftermarket stuff leaves people open to so yeah so basically i mean and the things yellow label isn't foolproof either i know there are definitely people who have snuck snuck books past that were like pre-signed and they 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 have snuck the books past that process as well. It would but be hard to do knowing it knowing is the that best, process. No, yeah, yeah. Right out, I know it. It would be very hard to do that, and it, and very hard to do that at any considerable level. I mean, I, I am not going to discount that there might be those out there, but it's a very 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 small percentage. Um, where the CBCS I'm, system I'm saying, it's, and their it, yeah, it's it's just the the, the label and. It's not, no system is foolproof. Um, You can definitely take advantage of anyone if you're willing to look and work hard enough to find the flaw in the system. But the yellow labels are definitely, the the yellow labels are definitely the uh, way to go. They're the the best as far as- I genuinely don't think you could long-term take advantage of the yellow label system with CGC. I think you can maybe get away with it once or twice, but you could not do it on any sort of real volume. Knowing, knowing, yeah. again, I'm, I'm, 
I'm a CGC rep approved for facilitation for my con. I've done the, their, their process. I've gone through what it takes to become the kind of person that they will allow to do those kind of things. Um, it's a absolutely strenuous and extensive, um, you know, process. Um, it has a whole lot of checks and balances in it. I, I consider CGC yellow label as the most reliable autograph authentication from any company for anything period. And I include like sports autographs and things and, uh, of those nature. Um, does that mean it's foolproof? No, but it's, ba- it's as good as there is in existence. I agree. And my point was, my point is though, is that if you didn't witness the signature yourself, then you, I mean, yellow is the best. It's the most reliable, but if you didn't witness it yourself, it's, you know, it's, even if it's 99.9%, it is, there's still 0.1%. It's not legitimate. I mean, I, I would wager it's higher than that, but I see your point. Yeah. Well, I've got uh, like th- maybe three books that I had um, submitted that I did not see the person sign it. Um, it was done through a third party facilitator, but I looking at them, I have no reason to doubt at all that they might not be legitimate. The process to become no, a third I'm party not... facilitator is very difficult. Yeah, exactly. That's actually, what, that's actually what led me to CGC. So to give people an idea, um, through CGC, for me to become a third-party facilitator, it was about a year and a half or two years worth of work. And then and then we had kind of a trial period where we had to do very specific, focused, small signings um, with evidence. And then we also have to bring in separate witnesses. I cannot set witness for a CGC signing at my own facility. I have to bring in somebody not related to me who passes a background check who can then right. witness have both of us as checks and balances. Conversely, CBCS, I walked up to them at a Denver Comic-Con one time and I told them, hey, I'd like to look into becoming a witness. I have a store. They said, oh, you have a store? I said, yeah. They said, okay, we'll fill this paper out and you can witness. And I said, like at this show today? He goes, oh yeah. All you have to do is fill this paper. They literally didn't ask for proof that I owned a store. Um, and I even asked him, what about original art? And he goes, oh yeah, um, that's fine. If you tell us they, they got original art from somebody, go ahead. I mean, I could have, J. Scott Campbell was there. How easy it would have been to have is one of my friends that was an artist, throw a J. Scott Campbell style remark on a comic book, bring it back to them, sell it as a J. Scott Campbell remark. I would have made a fortune, um, you know, and, and it wouldn't have been that hard for me to do something like that. Exactly. So the, that's our point though, is that, that's, that just kind of, very well brings it back around to my point that um, that CGC is the is the industry standard for a reason. Yes, and um, and I am going so, to yeah. continue to enjoy my signed books that I did not witness and believe wholeheartedly that they're legitimate. Yep, I well, have my Hulk one eighty one. I was I did not witness any of the three autographs on my Hulk one eighty one. Oh, that's not true. We I witnessed one of the three, um, but I got um, uh, Len and Herb on there, and I did not witness them. But I am fully confident in the legitimacy still. Yeah, yeah. So I have two that are um, two CGC yellow labels, uh, older Fantastic Fours that are signed by uh, Joe Sinnott, and then I've got a uh, Spidey that's signed by uh, Romita Senior and Romita Junior. Awesome. And I yeah, I have no reason to even doubt at all. If it's CGC, I have no reason to doubt. So I would tell anybody, if you're going to start buying signed books um, after the fact, already graded, always go CGC. uh, And you're never going to, I think, 
end up with anything that's not legitimate. Yeah, I, I would agree with that um, assessment 100%. So uh, why don't you guys talk about your experience with original art and signatures a little bit? Um, so what are signature your investments, uh, that's a big part of my um, investment strategy when it comes to my long-term investments. A, I, I really enjoy the signature aspect of things. I like meeting people. I like talking to people. Um, I, I kind of have to for my job anyways to try and talk to them about our con and those things. So, you know, that 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 helps. But um so there's that aspect of it, but really for the, the signature investing, the biggest thing I will tell people is don't get something signed that you think is an investment without um, CGC authorization. Um, it's not worth it. Uh, you're not really going to make anything back on the other end. Um, I would also really recommend, you know, with some exceptions, they do a lot of like the mail-ins and stuff where they'll do the signature events um, at CGC or you'll go to a con, you know, don't be the guy that goes to a con and I've had this happen um, that goes in, goes to a con, takes, you know, buys a book from me, walks over, gets it signed and tries to sell it back for me for more. Um, don't be that guy. That's not how it works. Um, you know, whatever you paid for that signature, it's not worth that much to me or else I would have done it myself already. Um, I have that same access. I actually had somebody buy a first appearance of Falcon, bring it, get it signed by Anthony Mackey. He paid him, I think $80 for the autograph. And he brought it back to me and I offered him about 80 bucks for the book. <laughs> and he was like, well, I, I, I paid that for the autograph. I said, I know that's the value of the book. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it, he was, he was quite upset. Um, but I had to explain to him, like, you know, if I thought that that was worth doing, I would have all these books on my wall signed by him too. And it's not, um, you know, focus on, if you can go, and this is obviously not for everybody. And this is again, where having an ally comes very handy because if you have someone like me who does happen to go to say San Diego comic-con, um, where you can get, you know, every year at San Diego comic-con, I'm able to meet very big name creators that normally don't sign for free. I'm able to get them for free, witnessed for free included most of the time. Um, there's access to a lot of those things because it's a promotional event, not a, not a money-making event. And there are certain cons around the country that they do that as well as certain private events for comic shop owners and things like that. And I will for my customers that are my better customers and for people that I know are interested in that aspect of collecting, I will get them done and I will take them and I will do them for them for free. You know, they just have to pay for the, um, the expense of the grade and I will get the actual signature because I'm there at the booth anyways. And, you know, I'll get a certain amount of them done for free for them to help them out. So it rolls back into that creating the, the, the relationships aspect we, we talked about. Yeah. SIGs are a, uh, they're an interesting, I mean, that's from an investment standpoint, they're, they're really hard. Um, it's a long-term investment more than a short term, I think. Well, but the, the thing is, if, well, if it's a short-term investment, SIGs are untenable because generally the value of the signature is not going to exceed the cost of the witness and grading. No, no, most of the time. Yeah. So unless you are able to, and even if you get a remark on it, the remarks are generally so expensive. And a remark, for those who don't know, is could be a doodle. It could be... And like an Excelsior, Stan Lee, Excelsior would be considered a remark. And that's why I was saying focus on events where they're promotional events, where they're there doing those things and they're they're signing for free because they're promoting a book. Or um, a lot of times store signings, a lot of times you'll have guys that'll go and sign for free promoting their book that don't normally sign for free and those kind of things. Um, And so those are good ways. Um, but even then, it's really best as a long-term investment. And I only get things signed and graded that I want for my personal collection. Um, I go back to the same um, you know, advice I give everybody is never invest in anything you wouldn't be fine owning if it was valueless because that can happen to you. 
Um, and so if I, if it's something I happen to like, I'll get that yellow label put on it, but I will do that knowing that, Hey, one day, you know, when it goes time to retire and my kids don't want this crap, then I'm going to have to have somebody that takes it. Um, so I do have to take that into account. All right. So I think that about wraps up what we have to say about investing. We hope that those, some tip, you picked up some tips and tricks that'll help you out. We're going to briefly touch on what speculating is. So, Eddie, why don't you uh, break down what speculating is and uh, tell us about some of the etiquette when people start speculating? So the other side of the coin of investing is speculating. And I liken it to uh, the day trading form of uh, comic book buying as opposed to the investing side. Uh, These are the people that are basically coming in and getting out quick. They're the flippers. They're the ones that are jumping on the hot books, uh, preferably right before they get hot so they can flip them for um, the inflated price when they do go up and everybody, uh, all the shops sell out and everybody's scrambling on eBay or wherever to get a copy um, at God knows how much more times the original price. So for someone who is a speculator, um, I know Roger and I have talked about this quite a lot. Uh, this is someone who is doing quite a lot of research. They're basically, this is like their part-time job really. If they uh, want to do it successfully. If you want to do it successfully, yeah. This is someone who is doing the research rather than just sitting on an item waiting for it to go up in value, but doing the research beforehand to see which books are coming up, which are speculated to be hot, getting kind of the insider track on what new characters might be popping up or what book might suddenly just catch fire on a Wednesday. Uh, they're the ones that unfortunately a lot of times will come into the shop on a Wednesday morning and want to buy up all of the copies uh, that are on the shelf before anybody else can. And this guy, this person is pretty much the bane of my existence whenever a hot book comes out. That he's the person, <laughs> right, he's the person that forces us, unfortunately, to put a big sign on that issue saying, one per customer, please. That's kind of like the thing, if you don't want to be the jerk when it comes to speculating, be respectful of that. Um, better yet, get to know the shop owner. Get to know them personally because you know what? They might just uh, be a little nice and slip an extra copy for you because they like you. I know I've done that. Um, a lot of times when someone I've never seen before comes into the shop on a Wednesday morning when a hot book is out and will try to buy multiple copies, he's the one that will bring the hammer down and say, sorry, one per customer, no exceptions. But if I got a guy that I know, and I know he's a speculator, but he's a good person and he comes in and he spends money regularly, not just on hot books, but on other stuff throughout the shop. If I like him and I think I can spare it, he's the one that I'll maybe let the, the rule slide for it and I'll let him buy a couple of copies, you know, or depending on how much I got. Yeah, fine. I know it might sell out by to the end of the day or tomorrow, but, you know, two, eight, maybe even three, if you're really nice to me, I really like you. But um, you're not going to get that by just walking into a shop unannounced and suddenly scoop up all the copies and think no one's going to care or no one's going to notice. That's the the D move, as I like to call it. And don't be the D. (laughs) We won't ask what D stands for. 
Um, yeah, so I'm actually I'm really excited. So I'm, we're going to have a third part to this whole thing, which I'm going to do an interview with a friend of mine, James. And the way I met James was by being a speculator at my shop. I mean, he came in and and he started out doing that and we turned him into at least a little bit of a reader, but he's still, you know, he's, that's, that's, that's what he does. It's his hobby, but James did it the right way. And James actually has built it to where we're, we're friends. Um, you know, he, he would tell us about books that would get hot that were on FOC so we could order more. And he would give us a warning and say, Hey, this one's going to be hot. You know, he, he gave all that work and all that research and he gave that research to me. And so when he gave that research to me, he provided me with a value that others weren't providing. So when it came down to it, I had a vested interest in making sure he got taken care of um, well as well. Um, and if you he became ahead an asset of time, for you, absolutely. And if you can know ahead of time, I mean, there were books he would order 50 copies with us and he got to the point where more often than not, those books that he ordered 50 copies on, he was hidden, you know? And so we'd, you know, he'd order 50 copies, get the variant with it. We'd sell it all to him at cover price cause it didn't cost us anything extra and he'd make some money off of it. Um, and he has eventually built that up into making now a business where he, does um, custom covers and he has some of the best custom covers I've seen. They actually um, have done a lot of work with Peach Momoko, who's a very hot cover artist right now. Um, he's got a lot of very well-known, large, um, you know, big name creators he's working with. And the other thing he did is he toured cons with us and he flipped books at cons, but he met all these creators. He learned how the industry worked on the inside. Um, and now he's made that into a legitimate business over time. So we're going to have an interview with him and talk about, um, you know, his mentality and his tips for speculating and, and, and what to do and what not to do coming up that I'm excited for. All right. So that's about going to do it for this episode. Tales from the comic shop. Thank you, Eddie, Roger, your expertise is always is greatly appreciated. You're welcome. Absolutely. And good night. This show is part of the Geek Nerd Network. Geek Nerd Network. Find more shows like it at geeknerdnetwork.com. This is Janet.